Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Winnie Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 85th episode of the Nauticast, titled Follow the Leader, an analysis of a Clash of Kings scenarios one, in which the Messiah, her miracle babies, and her dwindling entourage wandered the desert in pursuit of a star, only met by three wise men. Well, not all of them are men, and really none of them are wise. But you get the idea, right? And we're very excited to announce we have a new guest for this episode. Please welcome to the Nauticast, Mighty Isabel. Hi! I'm Mighty Isabel. I'm a moderator on Reddit, on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. I'm also on Twitter and on Tumblr as Mighty Isabel. I am not any of the other Isabels in the <laughs> fandom. I'm always the Mighty One. Well said. We've been looking forward to having you on for a while. We talked about getting together for this episode way back when we did that Fire and Blood event where George was at, and great to have you on at last. I've been looking forward to it. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, Ward of the West of the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the Higher Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valerian, Hedrical Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lord James Stormboard, Warden of the World Wide Weirwood, Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Richard C. Lord of Bravos, Kelly, Warden of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Ryan, Lord Anonymous, and our three newest members of the Small Council. Three. Wow. Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a priest of the Drowned God, and the King's Cook, Nali Ali, Master of Canali. Canoli? Oh, God damn it. Got it again. Another name that kind of fucks me up. Thank you, as always, to our counselors, and welcome to our new ones, Lord, Lord, and Cook alike. Our question this week, very relevant for a trailer that just dropped, Grandmaster Tim Bob asks, My question is, what are your rankings of the Star Wars movies? This was prompted by me hearing that Emmett thinks Revenge of the Sith is the best in the Tyrion 2 episode. I must know more. I suppose I should expand the question and ask why your number ones are what they are. Well, before I defend my indefensible choice, I'll turn that one over to our guest first. What, what, is, what is your favorite Star Wars movie and why? I'm going to answer the question by remixing the question to be oh. the question that I want to answer. Perfect. I love it already. Which is that the best way to watch Star Wars is the machete order. This is a blog post that proposes that if you watch the episodes in the order, episode four, episode five, and then episodes two and three, and finally episode six, you get a coherent narrative about father and son Skywalker and their coming of age stories and their moral choices that ends in a satisfying conclusion and uh, at the at the end of uh, Return of the Jedi that wraps up both arcs and that you're certainly welcome to watch the other episodes. It's totally fine. Like that, you know, <laughs> it's not like, illegal. Watch whatever, watch whatever uh, Star Wars you want to watch. The idea that there's these pieces of narrative that we should, as an audience, enjoy and find and find the narratives that speak to us. What a crazy concept. I, I, I think that's I think that's right. And I think it's applicable to us in our fandom. We have hundreds of coherent little story pieces that uh, are connected by points of view and by locations and by events like battles and by themes like identity. And they are 
they are ripe to be remixed. And yeah. Girls Gone Canon over there are doing very cool POV rereads on that idea. So my answer to the question is remix culture is the way to go. The world is full of story shapes, to quote Discworld. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a great way of putting it. I think like there there is so much to take away from the from the Star Wars from the Star Wars remixing the order, taking a look at it. I, I'm actually the next time I'm going to watch Star Wars, I'm going to try the Machete Order that you, that you recommended, Isabel. So that'll be a lot of fun. I'll, I'll see if I can glean anything from that. I think um, you know breaking is something that I love doing, as as some of you follow me on Twitter. Uh, no, so it's hard for me to kind of just be like why my number one is number one because you know that would take away from the ranking, which is I think which I find all the fun in doing the ranking of it. So. The ranking itself. Number one, the first Star Wars, otherwise known as A New Hope. Number two, come on, stop shaking your heads at me, guys. Come on, ranking Never. is fun. Ranking is so much goddamn fun. Number two, Return of the Jedi. Number three, The Empire Strikes Back. Number four, Revenge of the Sith. Number five, uh, I, I kind of get lost after that. Basically, all the rest after the after those first couple. I I, I think you know, and this would be a good transition for you, Emmett. I think, and we were talking about this right before we came on air, that I think that the Star Wars movies, the prequels, get tend to be undervalued, and they do have a lot of depth in them, even if George Lucas can't write dialogue worth a goddamn. You know, he's just a terrible writer in terms of dialogue, but he does communicate interesting. And sometimes emotive themes in his stories, which I really enjoy in the prequels. I think even in the worst one, Attack of the Clones, there are some moments in that movie where I'm like, yeah, this this kind of slaps, man. This is actually some really heavy stuff that Lucas is processing through this kind of space opera saga series. I really like the Star Wars prequels. They're obviously hugely flawed, the, the bad dialogue being the main indicator. Lucas really should have trusted the actors the way he did with the original trilogy. But I think they make a really interesting counterpoint to the original trilogy in a lot of ways. I think the original trilogy, the actual story, if you just break it down to the list of events, is not that interesting. I think what makes those movies great is the execution of it and how everyone involved is given their all and making those those distinct emotional projects. And the prequels, from I think, are just the inverse where the execution is really muddled, but the actual story, if you can get at it past all the muddled execution, is really, really interesting and, and is a great follow-up to the original trilogy. And while the Machete Order, I think, works great in terms of taking you emotionally through the journey of Anakin Skywalker and how that relates to Luke, I like uh, both trilogies side by side because you come out at the at the end of Return of the Jedi and the defeat of the Empire and this kind of open vista for, for the rebellion in terms of what they're going to do next politically. And presumably they're trying to resurrect something like the Republic. And then you go, then you have the prequel trilogy and see what the Republic was like. And it's a joke. Mm. It's this completely corrupt bureaucracy that, that fell into navel-gazing thuggery and allowed cities to grow up within its midst. Like the end, the final shot of The Phantom Menace I love where everyone's celebrating the peace they just won, and Sidious is right in the middle of them staring out at the audience like Jack Nicholson at the end of The Shining, just grinning because he's completely winning. And I, I, I love that aspect of the prequels, and Sith focuses the most on that and the least on the stuff that doesn't work. It still has its flaws, but they're ironed out more than they are in Phantom Innocent and Clones, and I, I love all the action scenes, and I love the weird opera house scene with Palpatine and Anakin, the one scene in the prequels that I think pretty much everyone likes. And I love that legacy because I think it's informed the new movies, especially Last Jedi, where Luke gives that little speech about how at the height of their power, the Jedi allowed Sidious to take over. For me, that's the appeal of the prequel trilogy encapsulated, and I like that it's feeding at least thematically into the new stuff. 
I'm not going to pretend that any objective ranking of the Star Wars movies puts Empire Strikes Back over Revenge of the Sith, because Revenge of the Sith is definitely a much more flawed movie. But there's something about it I love. Something about the look of it and the feel of it and that scene where, like, Anakin and Padme are, like, staring at each other silently in windows across the city and Anakin just cries as he realizes what he's about to do. It's this weird moment that could only be made with the technology Lucas was working with at the time. And I think that's something interesting about the prequels to me and, I, and about both the prequels and the original trilogies that they are uh, testaments to the filmmaking technology of the era. That's something they have in common, even as the technology itself is completely different. So I, I will happily cape for the prequels, despite them being very much flawed. It's the same thing I do for like the Matrix sequels <laughs> or like Ang Lee's Hulk, like these weird early aughts movies that are kind of objectively terrible, but are so singularly themselves and not made out of kind of a machine that I, I, have, I have a weird affection for them. You know, it's it's funny. I actually saw, I'm, I'm sure you guys probably did as well, but I saw Revenge of the Sith in theaters. I think I saw that one and the Phantom Menace in theaters. I didn't see Attack of the Clones in theaters. And I remember at the end of of the third one, at the end of the Revenge of the Sith, I was with a, a friend of mine who was just openly like weeping. And I'm like, I've never seen that before And at the end of a movie. And take all the flaws of Revenge of the Sith there. There are many, many flaws in it. We can maybe discuss that at a future point. Hint, hint, nod, nod. But, you know, there's something that provokes or invokes emotion among people when they're watching these movies, even if they are the flawed creatures that are the prequels of these movies. I think I almost heard Quentin say Sidious is your favorite character in some ways. I, I don't know. Kind of. I mean, he's he's just so enjoyable to watch, especially <laughs> in the prequels. Because he's, yeah. like when Anakin says, I would love to kill you, and Sidious just whispers, oh, I know you would. I love that. <laughs> it's great. I watched Phantom Menace in the theater probably eight or nine times that season. Wow. I was nice. living out in the desert, and there wasn't anything to do but go to the movie theater. And we went a lot. So thank you to Grandmaster Tim Bob for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, I will answer here on the Not A Cast podcast. You're welcome to join us as a sworn sword or higher patron of ours at patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F. And for all our poor fellow and above patrons, our next Patreon-only episode on the 2009 Zack Snyder movie Watchmen, with commentary on the first episode of the new HBO series Watchmen, is coming your way starting on Monday, October 28th for our small council patrons, Tuesday, October 29th for our High Lords and Ladies and Kingsguard patrons, Wednesday, October 30th for our Sworn Sword patrons, and Thursday, October 31st for our poor fellow patrons. Finally, in terms of announcements, our next live stream episode is coming your all's way on Monday, October 28th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, which is tonight if you are listening on our general release date to this episode. And it's going to be all about A Clash of Kings, Aria 4, our first battle chapter of A Clash of Kings. Woo-woo! And that will be available on YouTube and then out on audio format at our usual Patreon and general release schedules and places. But enough about Patreon. Let's turn our attention to A Clash of Kings' Daenerys 1. Last we heard from Daenerys Targaryen, she had birthed three dragons in a magical messianic ceremony. Let's check back in. In with Danny in the synopsis of Clash Kings, Daenerys 1. The Dothraki named the comet Shirakia, the Bleeding Star. The old men muttered that it omened ill, but Daenerys Targaryen had seen it first on the night she had burned Khal Drogo, the night her dragons had awakened. It is the herald of my coming, she told herself as she gazed up into the night sky with wonder in her heart. The gods have sent it to show me the way. At long last, we finally come to what the Red Comet truly heralds. And at long last, we also return to Daenerys Targaryen. Good mom to her dragons. Danny vocalizes her thoughts about the comet to her handmaid, Doria. But Doria, who you might want to start thinking about making your goodbyes to, says that if she goes east, there's only the Redlands and them's the Badlands. But Danny insists that they must go forward, only forward, following 
the star, the star, dancing in the sky with a tail as red as some blood, with a tail as red as some blood. Ah, finally was able to get my quota in there for, for songs for this quarter. Regardless, Danny won't go north into the Dothraki Sea as she was sure that they'd encounter some Kalasar up there who would murder the bejesus out of the men and enslave everyone else. To the south were the Lazarine, who, if you'll recall, had suffered a recent bout of genocide at the behest of an invasion which Daenerys Targaryen had inspired. So they would also have a less than fond opinion of Danny. And sure, they could travel the river towards Marine, Yonkai, and Astapor, but Kyle Pona was out that way. And while Pona was formerly one of Drogo's co's and very kind to her, he was the first to abandon Drogo and would almost certainly kill Danny and her merry band of 100 warriors. But does she actually have 100 warriors? No, Danny thought. I have four. The rest are women, old sick men, and boys whose hair has never been braided. Thank you for the quick answer, Danny. Danny does have dragons, but the reality is that they're mere hatchlings, and Arak could make short work of them, and Pono could easily seize the dragons for himself. The price that a dragon could fetch was entirely beyond the concept of price due to the low supply of dragons, and the demand was high, quite high. Well, Danny ain't about to let anyone take her dragons. They were hers, born from her, quote, faith and her need. They got life from Drogo, Rago, and Miriam's door. She'd walked into flames for Pete's sake, and the dragons were drinking her milk. No man will take them from me while I live. You will not live long should you meet Kal Pono, nor Kal Jaco, nor any of the others. You must go where they do not, Jorah says. Jorah, who sucks, got the honor of being the first of Danny's Queen's Guard. His gruff counsel and the Dothraki omens were clear. She mounts her silver mare, bald as a damn baby, but bedecked in that glam white lion's pelt, and leads her Kalasar east with the future Viserion perched on her lion-clothed shoulder. And then they're off, following the red comet, moving by night, and resting during the day. But the jury was not kind. Some of the horses are the first to die, and then the people start succumbing to the elements too. Three days in, an old man fell from his horse, and the blood flies came. He was dead an hour later. They burned his horse with him that night. Then a baby girl dies with her mother's wailing going on all the next day. Not for her, the endless black grasses of the nightlands. She must be born again. There was little forage for food in the red wastes and less water. The rivers were dry. The horses subsisted on brown devil grass. Danny's outriders found no wells nor oases in the red waste, only the occasional bitter pool of shallow, stagnant drinking water. And even those were growing smaller and rarer as the party kept moving east. Even the gods did not answer prayers for rain. Cheerlessly, too, the wine starts to run out, then the cloud of mare's milk, then the bread is gone, then the beef jerky was exhausted. With no forage, no game to be found in the red waste, they ate the flesh of their dead horses. And everyone keeps dying. Doria, remember her? She starts to look too thin and her hair goes brittle. Not a good sign. Danny herself suffered alongside her people. Her breast milk, though, dried up and her nipples cracked and bled. But instead of growing gaunt like Doria, she got lean and hard as a stick. And she wasn't so much scared for herself as much as for her dragons. She recalls her various family members and those close to her and how they all died. But death wouldn't claim her dragons. No one could have her dragons, Danny vows. The dragons themselves were as small as cats that she once saw on the walls of Illyria's manse in Pentos. That is, they seemed that way until they spread their wings. Their span was three times their length, each wing a delicate fan of translucent skin, gorgeously colored, stretched taut between long, thin bones. When you looked hard, you could see that most of their body was neck tail and wing such little things she thought as she fed them by hand the problem with feeding the dragons was that they didn't take to horse meat that is until dana remembered that viserys once told her that dragons ate only cooked meat so she had the horse meat charred and the dragons went ham on the on the seared meat eating several times their own weight they, be they began to grow larger and stronger and the dragons were hot to the touch as well by night the calisar made their movements east and each night danny had a different dragon perched on her shoulder 
The others stayed in cages that Eerie and Jigby kept, and those dragons stayed close to Danny in order to keep them dormant. One morning, Danny tells the story of Aegon's dragons and how they were named for the gods of Old Valyria, Vagar, Meraxes, and Balerion, giving some backstory to their origins and their dragon temperament and characteristics. When Danny's blood or Ago says that the black dragon is Balerion come again, Danny says, yeah, maybe, but the dragon should have new names. So she, so she names the green dragon Rhaegal after Rhaegar, her brother, Viserion after her other brother Viserys, and Drogon after Khal Drogo. Still, everyone continues to die as the, horses, as the dragons get larger and stronger. The devil grass which fed the horses grows scant, and, everyone, and horses die one by one, leaving many of Danny's Kalasar to have to walk by foot. And poor Doria. She gets a fever, her hair comes out in clumps, and then she is unable to mount her horse. Her blood rider Jogo says that they have to leave her behind or strap her to a horse, but Danny refuses, thinking of the times when Doria taught her the secrets of lovemaking on the Dothraki Sea. She gives her water from her own, water skin, from her own skin of water, takes a damp cloth to her brow, and holds her until she dies. Only then she would permit the Kalsar to press on. Sad. Pressing farther on and on into the, red, into the red waste, they see no sign of other human beings. The Dothraki begin to feel that there's no end to the desolation and that the gods have led them into hell. Danny wonders herself, and she asks Jorah whether there's an end to all this hell that they're in. It has an end, he answered wearily. I have seen the maps the traitors draw, my queen. Few caravans come this way, that is so. Yet there are great kingdoms to the east and cities full of wonders. Yiti, Karth, a shy by the shadow. Will you live to see them? Danny asks. I will not lie to you. The way is harder than I dared think. Perhaps we are doomed if we press on, but I know for a certainty that we are doomed if we turn back. If they turn back, they are lost, basically. Danny kisses old slave bear on the cheek and he smiles. Danny wants to be strong for him to be the blood of the dragon, but the bad times only continue. The next watering hole, if you can call it that, is a pool of hot, stinking water. Still, they have to drink. They drink or they die. And already a third of her Kalasar was dead. The comet mocks my hopes, she thought, lifting her eyes to where it scored the sky. Have I crossed half the world and seen the birth of dragons only to die with them in this hard, hot desert? She would not believe it. The next day, when all hope felt lost, one of Danny's outriders returns home and tells her that there's a city ahead. Danny orders the outrider to show her where the city is, and he takes her to it. When the city appeared before her, its walls and towers shimmered white behind a veil of heat. It looked so beautiful that Danny was certain it must be a mirage. She asks if Jorah knew which city this was, but Jorah doesn't. He's never been this far east before. Danny wanted to run up to the city, but she orders her blood Ago to ride up to the city and determine whether it would be welcoming to them or not. Unfortunately, the blood returns rather quickly, telling Danny that the city is dead, with only wind and flies as its inhabitants. Jiqui insists that they not go into the city, as it is a dead city, and Eri agrees. Danny does not. She rides her horse forward, riding under her the shattered arch of an ancient gate, riding through the silent street with Jorah and her blood riders following. Danny is unsure how long the city has been deserted, but she notes how pale white the broken city is. She makes note of the marks of the fire that have been left on most of the buildings and judges that the Dothraki have been here in the past. Perhaps even the gods of the city were among the statues adorning the road to Vase Dothrak. Danny sends her men out to search the city, and one old man returns with two handfuls of figs, and though they're withered, everyone grabs some up to eat. Still, more Dothraki return to tell Danny that fruit trees are growing with grapes and other fruits. However, in George R.R. R. Martin fashion, others return to tell Danny that there are gardens in the city. Gardens of bones. Ghosts, Eerie muttered. Terrible ghosts. We must not stay here, Khaleesi. This is their place. Well, Danny ain't afraid of no ghosts, though. Besides, they need the fruit. She orders Eerie to go find some hot, clean sand for a bath. While her handmaids are out, Danny heats up some horse meat for her dragons. She wonders if this might be the place to stay. There was water and food here. They could survive, and it sure would be nice to wake up in the same spot every day. Eerie and Jigby come back, and Danny gets undressed for a sand bath, 
She bays basically the unsullied way. The handmaids comment that Danny's hair is growing back, and Danny feels her scalp, noticing that it is coming back as well. When her hair is all the way back, she was going to grow it long and get it braided with oil, Dothraki style, to remind her that Drogo's strength was inside of her. Danny then notices Viserion in the corner of the room, and she starts imagining what it would be like to be an actual dragon. She can stand on mountains, touch the sky, even see Westeros, and then touch the comet itself. <sighs> but then that goddamn Jorah Mormont decides to interrupt Danny's errors like fantasy of becoming a dragon. He wants to see her. So Danny slips back into her lion's cloak, and Jorah enters, bringing a gift a peach. Small, but when she bit into it, it tasted sweet. Danny thinks that the gods were kind to her to bring them here, but Jorah's like, yeah, this is fine for now. A good place to recuperate before moving on. Danny says that her handmaids think that there's ghosts here, and Jorah, having just listened to Band of Horses, Is There a Ghost, says that there are ghosts all about. We carry them wherever we go. Tell me the name of your ghost, Jorah. You know all mine. Well, Jorah reluctantly admits that his ghost is a woman by the name of Lenes, who knew, his second wife. Danny presses him for more information. She was beautiful, a goddess come to earth, the maid made flesh, and she was of higher birth than Jorah's, the daughter of Lord Leighton Hightower and great niece of Sir Gerald Hightower of the Kingsguard. She came from an ancient and proud family. Danny puts in that the Hightowers were loyal to the Targaryens, and Jorah admits as much. Danny asks if Leighton and the future Elsie Gior made the match for Jorah, but Jorah says no. He tries to sidestep the question, saying that the tale is long and boring, but Danny's got all the time in the world for such a story. So Jorah proceeds to talk about his home on Bear Island with its rustic splendor, but quite remote. It's got trees and waterfalls and lots of nature shit, but the winners were hard there. But Jorah had, you know, he had kind of enjoyed his time, and he had enjoyed his Bear Island ladies too, by the bushel, getting down with fishwives and crofters' daughters before he ended up getting hitched with a glover from Deepwood Mott. Those two were married for 10 years, and though the woman was plain... <laughs> This is in George's telling, not mine. They loved each other after some fashion. But the sex was kind of dull. Worse than that, it only resulted in miscarriages, three of them, and the third took his first wife's life. Danny tells him that she started to hear it while taking his hand in hers. Jorah nods and then continues on with the story. At that point, Jorah was the Elsie of the Night's Watch, and, El and Jorah was a lord in his own right. He had lots of marriage officers, but all of those came to a sudden halt when Idiot Pirate, who sucks, Bale and Greyjoy, decided on becoming Idiot Pirate, Idiot Pirate King, who still sucks. Ned called his banners to aid Robert Baratheon, and Jorah joined in the fight. The final battle was on Pike. When Robert's stone throwers opened a breach in King Balin's walls, a priest from Mira was the first man through, but I was not far behind. For that, I won my knighthood. You know, I, I kind of forgot that Jorah was a lord first before he became a knight. Don't know if that really means anything, but it's kind of an interesting wrinkle in the story. I guess. Anyways, after the war was won, a tourney was held in Lannisport, and there Jorah saw Lanes. He became, in the words of the immortal Beyonce, crazy in love with the girl, and he begged to wear Lanes's favor. I fight as well as any man, Khaleesi, but I have never been a tourney knight. Yet, with Lanes's favor knotted around my arm, I was a different man. I won joust after joust. Lord Jason Malister fell before me, and Bronzeon Royce, Sir Ryman Frey, his brother Sir Hostine, Lord Wint, Strongbore, even Sir Boros Blunt of the King's Guard. I enhorsed them all. And then Jorah broke nine lances against Sir Jamie Lannister in the final tilt, and Robert, what I'm going to say is probably a giant fuck you to good brother, bad brother Jamie, decided Jorah was the winner. Jorah crowned Lannister, his queen of love and beauty, still crazy in love, and then Jorah went right up to late Lord Leighton Hightower and asked for Lannister's hand in marriage. Now, Jorah thought he would be rejected, but, Le but Leighton said yes, and Jorah and Lannister married right then and there in Lannisport, and they were happy forever after. No, not really, only for two weeks. Wait, Danny interjects, you were only happy for two weeks? She had more happiness from Drogo. Jorah says, yeah, sadly. That was the amount of time it took to sail from Lannisport to Bear Island. 
and Bear Island was something of a disappointment to Liness. There were none of the southern comforts Liness was used to. No dancing, no balls, no jewelers, and the food was lots of roasts and stews, and Liness decided that she wasn't about that after a bit. So Jorah sent for a cook from Old Town because he lived for her smiles, and then he brought in goldsmiths, jewelers, dressmakers, anything and everything all for Liness. He built a ship for Liness, and they sailed all over the world, and Jorah began taking on debts and becoming a tourney champion. Sadly, so sadly, his tilt at Lannisport was a one-hit wonder, and he had to go into more debt to replace all the tourney armor that he kept getting damaged in the telts. So they had to return back to Bear Island, and things grew worse. He dismissed his cook and his harper and started talking about pawning off Lanessa's jewels to her fury. The rest, I did things that shames me to speak of. For gold, so Lanessa might keep her jewels, her harper and her cook. In the end, it cost me all. When I heard that Edward Stark was coming to Bear Island, I was so lost to honor that rather than stay and face his judgment, I took her with me into exile. Nothing mattered but our love. Sir Jorah just too ashamed to admit that he sold human being, beings into slavery. Oh, I just my heart is just breaking for you, Jorah, right now. God damn, just breaking for me. God fuck that guy. They fled to Lys where he sold his ship. Danny asks if Lynesse died in Lys, but she only died to Jorah there. What Jorah means is that Jorah went to the sellsword business in Essos and Lynesse moved in with a merchant prince named Traegar or Mullen. That's an interesting name. And she's been with, and she's been his concubine ever since, with even Traegar's wife fearing Lynesse. Danny was horrified. Do you hate her? Almost as much as I love her. Jorah asks if he can be excused, and Danny agrees. But just as he's at the flap of the tent, Danny asks what she looked like. Sir Jorah smiled sadly. Why? She looked a bit like you, Daenerys. Warning bells now standing in Danny's head, and my head too. She realizes that Jorah's love, in quotation marks, for her isn't courtly. It's a sex-type thing, to quote Stone Temple pilots. She tries imagining going to Bone Town with Jorah, but it's only Drogo's face she sees in her mind. Drogo was her first, her sun and stars. She wonders if Drogo will be her last. No, he will not. Danny, wait for book five. She thinks that no one will want her due to her alleged barrenness and whether anyone will match up to Drogo. Her thoughts drift back to Jorah, and she thinks that she'll never play hide the Bear Island sausage with him, but she'll give him back his home. She sleeps at night and doesn't dream of ghosts. Instead, she sees Drogo and remembers the first night after they were wed. In her dream, they rode dragons instead of horses. In the morning, she summons her blood riders and tells them to make for a different directions on horseback. Aga will go southwest, Rakara will go directly south, and Joko will ride southeast after the Red Comet. They're to go in search of other cities, living and dead, find caravans and people, look for rivers, lakes, and look for the Great Salt Sea. She wants to know how far the Red Waste goes, and Danny wants all this because she wants to know what's ahead of her and how to get there before she actually begins her movement. So her blooders ride out as Danny and her produced Kalasar settle down in the city they named Vase Taloro. The City of Bones, not ominously at all. While she awaits her bullet riders, her, har her people harvest fruit while the men get their horses into good order. Children explore the city, finding bronze coins and stone flagons with handles ca carved like snakes. One woman does die, but that was only because she got stung by a red scorpion. Fortunately, that was the only death in the city. The horses begin to grow strong, and Jorah's wounds mend with Danny's help. Ricaro arrives back first, saying that the lands at the south end of the ocean with only dust, sand, thorns, and wind on the way there. He does mention that he saw the bones of a dragon there, so immense that he rode his horse through the jaw. She puts him back to work, getting him to put up the stones to let more devil grass grow. Ago turns up next, saying that the southwest had two more ruined cities, one with a very nice ward of skulls mounted on a rusty iron spear, and that was and that it was beside an iron bracelet with a neat thumb-sized opal the size of Danny's thumb on it, and some scrolls, but they're crumbling. Danny puts him to work in repairing the gate. She doesn't want any enemies coming up on them unaware. 
Jogo ends up being gone the longest, so long that everyone thinks that he's died out there. But one day he rode back with three, quote, queerly garbed strangers atop ugly humped creatures that dwarfed any horse. Jogo and the strangers come to up to the city and Jogo announces that he's been to Karth and he's brought people who want to see her. Danny stared down at the strangers. Here I stand. Look, if that is your pleasure. But first, tell me your names. The Pale Man says that he's Pyat Pri, a warlock. The Bald Man with jewels in his nose says that he's Zaro Zoantoxus, a merchant prince of Karth. And finally, oh, finally, at fucking long last, a woman in lacquered wooden mask tells Danny in the common tongue that she is none other than Danny's mom. Rayla. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, scratch that. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> terrible theory. I think it's a Shanti Collins theory. Guys, it's fucking Quaith. Quaith, the protagonist <laughs> of A Song of Ice and Fire, is finally here, and she's come to seek dragons. Seek no more, Daenerys Targaryen told them. You have found them. And that is A Clash of Kings, Daenerys won. That was a lot. I get it. The synopsis is very, very long. It seems like these synopses keep getting really, really long. Not that I don't mind some kind of good, solid world-building and tales of woe and misery. Hell, we just finished recording our podcast on Watchmen last night. But yeah, a lot. What did you both think? This chapter feels like a standalone experience more than most in A Song of Ice and Fire. The rest of Danny's A Clash of Kings storyline takes place in the city of Karth, where George expands on the religious themes in Danny 1, but within a different scenario with different imagery and a different tone. It's comparable to Arya's chapters in the middle of this book, in which she wanders the wasteland around the god's eye before arriving at the cursed castle of Harrenhal. And where Arya maybe gets one chapter too many early on in The Clash of Kings, which is why we combined her first three into a single episode, Danny might have benefited from this chapter being split up. It contains not only the trek through the desert to the City of Bones, but also Jorah's backstory with Lyness and an info dump about the dragons, which is a lot to take in at once. The through line is Danny's evolution as a leader. Arya is experiencing powerlessness, which is appropriate for a storyline in large part about the powerlessness of the small folk around her. Danny's story in this chapter is about leadership in the midst of decay, trying to kindle life amidst death. That's what holds Danny one together and ties it into the themes of A Clash of Kings. Leadership and decay and mortality, all that good stuff. So what did you think of it, Isabel? I came to this chapter as a show watcher, and I had already seen all the way through season two. And I remember being impressed by how big the world Martin was building was that I didn't get that from the show that that there were ancient dragon skeletons and whole layers of cities that had been that had risen and been invaded and Danny was a great POV to be ex- exploring all of that in because of her sense of her destiny and her connection to the magic and there's this tension in the chapter where in the first book, Danny is this narrative center of gravity, but in this chapter, she's she's just fighting to stay in the story and you know and like get somewhere where something can happen. And that's not meta at all with George or anything. <laughs> we we see her seeing the comet, and she saw the comet at the end of book one, and everybody in Westeros has seen the comet, and we know that she saw it over uh, over the magic. Uh, pyre so it feels really like it is connected to her for us the reader but it's also reminding us that there's all this stuff going on in westeros that she doesn't know about and i think that's a really interesting tension i agree that it's an interesting tension just like you i i watched season two before i read a game of thrones and then a clash of kings so i was interested in the story being a bit more expanded out i i do feel like this chapter and the succeeding chapters in clash they didn't capture my interest when I was going through the first time, and it didn't really capture my interest going through the second time 
and it didn't capture my interest going through the third time. <laughs> like there's a there's a there's a trend here. I mean, I'm not saying that they're bad chapters. I'm saying that it's it's a weird place that Danny is in thematically and narratively. You know, last week Emma talked about how Tyrion burning Winterfell, the Tyrion burning Winterfell storyline from the pitch letter was then retrofitted to fit Theon Greyjoy and how some of those plot points they well they don't fit as smoothly as they could have. While the character work that George gets in on Theon is some of the best stuff he does in Clash and on into a Dance with Dragons in the Winds of Winter. With Danny, we have, I want to say something similar and yet a bit different going on in the book altogether. We've got the carcass, the literal carcass of the leftover parts of the, her story from book one. You know those bones of the giant dragon, the red waist that Ricardo finds? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that this was from the this was left over from George's original conception of book one. Here's the quote for the pitch letter. When the moment is right, she will kill her husband to avenge her brother and then flee with a trusted friend into the wilderness beyond Vase Dothrak. There, hunted by Dothraki blood riders, Something about her love her life. She stumbles on a cachet, something about dragon eggs. A young dragon will give Daenerys and they will bend her to, and then she will bend them to her will. Then she begins a plan for her invasion of the Seven Kingdoms. You know, it's my belief that George was originally going to have Danny stumble onto the dragon eggs and or around this giant dragon skull that Ricaro finds in the Clash of Kings. Before he then starts rewriting this plot line in a much more satisfying direction, that Illyrio gifts her eggs at the Starver story in Game of Thrones in her second chapter during her wedding feast, and then she burrs the dragons in a mystical messianic fire ceremony at the end of her Game of Thrones arc. The bones of that giant dragon that Ricaro sees are the meta and literal carcass of what could have been in terms of her storyline. However, George's rewrites didn't, well, they didn't exactly stop the break, the breakneck, the breakneck pace of Danny's book one storyline. What happened was that Danny's story essentially stayed on target with his expected endpoint for book one, while his other stories of Westeros lagged way, way far behind as George ends up expanding and slowing the nerve there. So that created a problem. What to do with Danny while George plays, quote, catch up with the rest of the narrative? I love the idea of the landscape of Essos and Westeros littered with the carcass of old storylines. That's just great. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that is great. It's a great image. And yeah, if you look at Danny's storyline in Clash of Kings as a whole, it's it's not the best. It's the weakest one in the book, in fact. <laughs> I mean, I can say nice things. You can cobble together a structure out of Danny's plot in book two. She's a prophetic figure striking out into the desert in a transcendent search for truth. And we'll note the religious imagery throughout the episode and try to put it in some kind of context at the end. Suffice to say that George definitely succeeds in terms of the imagery itself. As I said when we began our analysis of A Clash of Kings, this book is where he really expands the story's color palette, and for no POV is that more true than Daenerys. I can close my eyes and just see her in her hmm. Harakar, leading her little party across the endless red sands, the comet blazing above to light their way. It's the stuff of, you know, Victorian-era pulp adventures and Led Zeppelin as much as the <laughs> Old Testament, and George is aiming for the sweet spot at the middle of all of them. In the wake of the miracle Danny accomplished at the end of book one, with all the divine, ecstatic imagery George brought to the table that we talked about, it is appropriate that her Clash of Kings chapters are overflowing with tableau framing her as the center of creation. And that reaches its apex at the House of the Undying, which overshadows the rest of Danny's <laughs> chapters in book two, but to be fair, it overshadows pretty much everything ever. This chapter grounds the imagery in life and death danger for Team Danny, unlike the rest of her Clash of Kings storyline, which gets listless and I would even say unmotivated by the end. And much more on that when we get to Karth. This chapter effectively strips everything down to provide contrast with the luxury of the big city. And on this reread, for me, this chapter felt like 
a version of all the other storylines in Clash of Kings boiled down to their essentials. So it's just the leader and the march and the wasteland and the comet. And from that angle, it kind of works for me that she's the last POV in the book to get a chapter. It's like George is commenting on what has come before by just breaking it all down. This is what Stannis is doing. This is what Joffrey is doing. This is what Rob and Theon and Elsie Mormont are all doing beneath the specifics. They're pointing at that banner in the sky, declaring that it's theirs, and heading off after it. And it makes me think of the line from Tyrion at the Blackwater, just as he's riding out to fight. He thought they were following, but never dared to look. And this is like the core act of the shadow play of power that we've been talking about with all our excellent guests of late, marching into death and seeing who follows. And that is a strong organizing principle for a storyline, but... I don't think George handled the specifics as well as he does with the other POVs in the book. Like the Dothraki still aren't getting much characterization, which is a problem because they're so tied to Danny's rise to power and later twists in her story as we see at the end of her arc in Dance with Dragons. Meanwhile, Jorah's backstory gets crammed in here where, in my opinion, it doesn't particularly fit, as if George knew he just had to put it in somewhere and he didn't really have a, a particularly organic spot for it. And this is all exacerbated, of course, by how few chapters Danny gets in Clash of Kings. Only five, fewer than that useless mook Theon Greyjoy. <laughs> Everything set up in this chapter would have benefited from more room later on to develop. That being said, you know, the sins of omission and the seeds of problems that will crop up later shouldn't necessarily detract from our enjoyment of this chapter in isolation. And there is quite a bit to enjoy here. Sure, I agree. There's, there's a fair amount to enjoy with Danny and Clash, but... It is the weakest story in Clash of Kings. I think there's no doubt about that. With the Red Wedding being pushed back, George has to hit the brakes on Danny's story. So he invents the story of Danny and Karth. Hooray! No. When the rest of the Westerosi story still lags behind, he invents the Slaver's Bay arc for Danny. Legitimate. Hooray! Great. I love it. It's so awesome with some caveats. On the whole, I much prefer the I much prefer the stories of Danny and Astapor, Young Kai, and especially Marine to her story in Karth and the Clash of Kings. It's not simply that I think wheel spinning is bad, and it's not that I feel like action hero Daenerys is for the best. You know, not at all. I love Danny's Miranese arc in A Dance of Dragons. It's her strongest character work. It's so emotive, and it has little to no action until Daznak's Pit, her ninth chapter in A Dance of Dragons. It's just when I see the author rapidly palming the rubber of the wheels to make them spin that I become kind of neutral face emoji about the storyline that Danny that Danny has in A Clash of Kings. But I'm not here to just damn Danny's A Clash of Kings arc altogether. Like Emmett, I, f- I find the overt religious imagery quite exceptional in this chapter. Moreover, I think the intermix of religious symbolism with the continued rise in the magical themes of Danny's storyline really helps to widen and strengthen the foundation for the increasingly messianic roles that Danny finds herself in this book, as well as to her future Mysa and Mother of Dragons roles in A Storm of Swords and A Dance of Dragons. But before Danny is leading hundreds of thousands of freedmen unsullied and sell swords into glory, George does have to affix training wheels to Danny's leadership arc with her mini Get it? It's like mini and Kalasar. It's a portmanteau. It's a word I just learned from the dictionary portmanteau. Good word. Well done, Jeff. I knew you could be literate one of these days. Oh, thanks, God. Yeah, I long last. <laughs> Yeah, Danny's uh, leadership arc gets lost in the shuffle in Karth, as we'll discuss, but it's at the forefront of this chapter, right from the beginning with the question of their direction. Danny 1 opens with her staring up at the Red Comet from the heart of a nuclear miracle, reborn along with the dragons, her entire worldview broken and remade. Bran almost went through a process like this in Book 1, but the dream world of wonder and terror vanished upon waking and waits for him at the cave in A Dance with Dragons. Danny now permanently lives on this plane, the lonely god as she will call herself in A Storm of Swords, and immediately she has to reconcile that with the urgent day-to-day realities of running a Kalasar. And not just any Kalasar, but a tiny one made up of the defenseless and the damned, only four warriors left, as she says, to protect them from danger in all directions. The Comet, as with the other storylines in A Clash of Kings, 
provides the perfect crucible for this moment, and how Dana handles it fuses her magical and political selves. Yeah, and as far as the magic goes, I agree with Isabel. I can't really blame Danny for assuming the comet is about her. I think she has more reason than anyone else. It's an unnaturally big comet, blazing Targaryen red. She saw it right before lighting the pyre, and now here she is with three goddamn baby dragons. But George slyly complicates that sense of manifest destiny by pointing out that, politically speaking, Team Danny has no choice but to head in that direction anyway. Her miracle, as momentous as it is, doesn't automatically reshape the cultural and geographic conditions as they stood for her people at the end of A Game of Thrones. Drogo's former followers are still her enemies and still more powerful than her. Her apotheosis is not going to make the Lazarine forget about all of the war crimes in Book 1. The quick mention of Slaver's Bay emphasizes that an entire continent is ringing Danny in with steel. No place for her, nor her miracle babies, nor her budding revolution that she talked about at the end of Book 1 with, you know, I free you all, you are all equals with me. The Carthine only make a place for her later on in this book because they hope to squeeze her dry for profit and power. And when that fails, she is left once more without a home. But I think it's important to note that even though the dragons and the comet and that whole messianic narrative doesn't on its own lift Danny to power, she still needs it. She needs that shadow play to keep her people together, to keep the coalition on the march in, in the face of these dire circumstances. So she cloaks material need in the trappings of power. She recasts the only route available to them as the one prefigured by destiny. And as leadership goes, I think that's not a bad start. There's an interesting parallel with what Stannis is doing in A Dance of Dragons with his march on Winterfell, where he's constantly having to kind of cloak himself in these kind of trappings of power and keep his really badly battered coalition together you know he ends up saying no we're not going to do any burnings because i have to keep the northern the northmen as allies but then the next chapter he ends up relenting and he ends up doing it in a compromise fashion yes these are burnings for uh relore you know as emma was saying checks his note on his hand yes for relore of course we're doing these burnings for relore when the, when the reality is that he's burning these these peasberry men for their cannibalism most likely and he's kind of doing these compromise measures showing himself to be the messiah while at the same time working practically in order to keep this really difficult political coalition, political and military coalition together. Danny's coalition is not as diverse as, as Stannis's is in terms of its culture and religious background. But I do think you're, you, you're onto something, Emmett, in, in talking about that Danny did do something very special at the end of her arc, and that is birthing dragons, which no one had done in forever, right? I mean, dragons like, had been, come from eggs before, but that was when dragons were living. Now, stone dragon eggs have become actual dragons, and that's going to guide her story forward really forever, I think. Absolutely. I love your comparison of Danny's march here to Stannis's march in The Dance with Dragons, you know, the, the march into hostile territory, losing people bit by bit. There's that constant sense of the army dwindling in that chapter, The King's Prize, in A Dance with Dragons, and you see that here. But also, as you say, Stannis is keeping this kind of fractious, grounded political coalition together. And with Danny, it's a little different. Her story in Clash is ultimately more about miracles than politics. And after the comet, the second miracle in this chapter is Danny's lizard babies. <laughs> dragons in fantasy are well-trod territory, to say the least. No creature looms larger in the genre's collective imagination, and there are so many directions you can go with them. Are they monstrous? Are they cute? Are they somewhere in between? And you can already see George working duality and ambiguity into his dragons. First of all, at this early stage, they're more of a liability than anything else. They're hard to feed, they get cranky if they can't see mom at all freaking times, and as Jorah points out, not only are they too small to offer any defensive advantages at this point, but they'll prove enticing as a prize to anyone they encounter. And that's because of how how rare and alien they are, not just as potential weapons, but just in terms of their beauty. Yet their preference for cooked meat connects them to humans, and that's how Danny bonds with them further. And again, George just nails the visuals here. I love the description of their translucent, colorful wings, 
the detail of the steam coming off of them at night, how Drogon visually echoes Balerion. But of course, immediately after Danny christens her dragon, she notes that even as they finally start to grow and flourish, the Kalasar withers and dies all around them. And that's just haunting in retrospect. It, it, it implies this zero-sum game between her children and her people, and forces her into this position of deciding which will she be in the end, the Misa or the Mother of Dragons. And this dynamic, of course, becomes central to her story in A Dance with Dragons, when the dragons are no longer the defenseless infants they are in this chapter, instead posing a threat. They're her children, born of her need, that wonderful line. So what happens when they eat children? To quote the prologue to A Feast for Crows, are they signifiers of wonder or terror, or maybe both? I'm always impressed by, um, I'm going to read the passage. Uh, uh, they unfolded their wings. Their span was three times their length, each wing a delicate fan of translucent skin, gorgeously colored, stretched taut between long, thin bones. When you looked hard, you could see that most of their body was neck, tail, and wing. Such little things, she thought as she fed them by hand, or rather tried to feed them, for the dragons would not eat. I mean, this... I, I love to crack on George, but the <laughs> the way that the the way that he writes these details of these young things in his care, in in her care, the way he writes the experience of motherhood throughout the books is was shocking to me when I when I hit the books the first time, and and I'm and I'm still always impressed by by it and knowing that you know i'm not aware of him being a parent or having cared for an <laughs> infant and somehow he locked into something that really resonated for you know as someone who has cared for an infant like that's it's it's really amazing it, it really is you know you know being a parent myself though not being a mother i, I do find george's descriptions of child rearing to be especially poignant i i think i'm thinking of some of sam's stuff in a feast for crows where he's just like what, what do i do with this baby like that was me like with my first child like when when she after she was born you know it, to kind of answer like kind of emmett's question about are, are the dragons signifiers of wonder or terror uh, you know the dragons all eating cooked meat you know that sort of works as a callback to eris's let him be king over cooked meat and charred bones as jamie remembers in a storm of swords and that duality i want to say in the dragons cute and dangerous at the same time it works i want to say as character work for danny too in this chapter we're seeing danny doing lots of right things empathetically giving doria water from her own skin and patting her head with a damp cloth before she dies but stop me if this sounds crazy but i can't help but read this line from the chapter they're mine she said fiercely they've been born from her from her faith and from her need given life by her the deaths of her husband and the unborn son in the magi and the magi miri ma's door danny had walked into the flames as they came forth and they had drunk milk from her swollen breasts no man will take them from me while i live and is anyone getting kind of an heiress the second targaryen vibe in the way that she's kind of Just communicating yeah her emotions of regarding these dragons you know i'm not doubting that a miracle occurred in the dothraki sea and that danny is a miraculous figure of destiny unlike eris who's just a piece of shit and was not a miraculous figure of destiny but like emmett was saying the fierce motherly feeling that danny experiences with the dragon children gets put to the test when they start targeting and eating human children and dance dragons they'll be talking about a little bit later on if that's a duality it's it's almost like the problem of feeding dragons is like a coin flip of some kind hmm we've never seen that metaphor used in relation to the targaryens before 
Jeff, you make a great point that that Danny has this this feeling of of religious destiny and faith swirling around her, but also this uneasiness in terms of how to act upon it. And I think you can see that especially in terms of the setting in our, our two settings, the Red Waste and Vase Toloro. This chapter is a one off in terms of setting. We don't come back to either of these locations in the published book so far. Definitely don't get the sense that we're going to. And maybe that's why both the Red Waste and Vase Toloro feel like uh, allegorical or even abstract locations, really more than concrete places. The Red Waste is one of those cases in which George is trying to provide the ultimate example of a trope. You know, my wall is bigger than your wall. My cursed castle is bigger than your cursed castle. My desert is going to be the <laughs> desert, goddammit. So Moses goes into the blender, and Muhammad, and Jesus, not only his birth, but his adult trek into the desert later on, and, you know, Ozymandias and the wasteland, and every shaman who ever isolated and deprived themselves for insight, they're all going in the blender here. It's blended a little bit with Conan the Barbarian. I mean, honestly. For sure. I think that's a great point. Again, getting back to those pulp adventures, that's definitely something that's at the, the origin of fantasy and something that George is drawing from strongly here. But of course, it's also a psychological plane specific to Danny, a gauntlet provided by the gods to Tester. And so, as with Karth, it feels kind of unreal around the edges, like it's all a mirage. And what this gauntlet is demonstrating is that being the mother of dragons makes neither her nor her people immortal. They're starving and dying behind her one by one, and the fact that she had this miracle doesn't change that fact. And this shakes Danny's certainty, not only herself as a leader, but the metaphysical order with which she has come into such profound contact. Danny looked at the horizon with despair. They had lost a third of their number, and still the waste stretched before them, bleak and red and endless. The comet mocks my hopes, she thought, lifting her eyes to where it scored the sky. Have I crossed half the world and seen the birth of dragons only to die with them in this hard, hot desert? She would not believe it. I mean, I, thought, I was thinking about the desert as being like a reflection of the comet itself. It's like they're marching on the surface of the comet, red on red. And Danny is thinking about reaching up and touching the comet. But what would that do to her when the desert is killing her people? And I think Isabel's completely right that this desert also represents the creative process. Is this journey into dead space you're trying desperately to bring to life, following <laughs> this beautiful but unknowable muse with no guarantee of success, knowing only you're doomed if you turn back? Like this quote from Jorah feels to me like George already realizing in book two that his story was kind of growing beyond his control. I will not lie to you. The way is harder <laughs> than I dared think. The meta is strong with this one. Yes, indeed. As for a Vase Toloro, City of Bones, it's a little more ambiguous in its meaning. On the one hand, you know, City of Bones. <laughs> what happened here? Something bad clearly went down, and I can't fault the Dothraki for being spooked by it. Again, I might be too. On the other hand, part of being a transformational figure like Danny is changing taboo. So when her handmaidens say, when the gods are gone, the evil ghosts feast by night. Such places are best shunned. It is known. It is known. Danny replies, not to me. And in terms of the material aspect, she proves correct. The only death in Vase Toloro comes from a mundane scorpion, and the city proves full of food and water once you know where to look. The Kalasar is able to relax and rebuild atop the bones of those who came before, and it definitely feels like George is driving at a point there, but again, I think it's ambiguous. Is George showing us an optimistic vision of life where once there was only death, the way Danny's kind of thinking about it now? Or is he hinting at what Danny and her children are ultimately going to leave behind? That's a great question, and my question back is, why not both? And could it also be argued that Vase to Loro kind of symbolizes Daenerys Targaryen? We've got fruit trees, and we've got bones. In Marine, Danny will order the trees be planted along the Skahazadan River to rebuild the economy, yes, but also, as Danny will say in her final chapter in Dance with Dragons, she wanted to rest, to laugh, to plant trees. And yet, she will conclude at the very end of that chapter, dragons plant no trees. And then, you know, 
dialing all the way back to the start of her Dance with Dragons story, we've got that whole closing portion of her first chapter, where the bones of a child, the child Hazir are brought to Danny, the girl whose name Danny is going to forget at the end of her Dance with Dragons arc. We have a Danny who will liberate slaves and break the wheel of the slave trade in Essos. And we also have the Conqueror who will burn Astapor to the ground, sparing slaves and children under the age of 12 from death. But everyone above that, they're all dead. Then we have Daenerys who yearns for peace and the serenity of the fading memories of the Red Door and Bravos. And then we have her turning all doors red in King's Landing as seen in season eight of the show and likely in A Dream of Spring as well. Vaisaloro, I want to say it symbolizes so much for Danny. And while there are no mentions of the city after Clash of Kings, don't worry, I checked to search for and Fire for this. It remains, I want to say, subtext for all of Danny's story going forward from this point. Absolutely. Vase Talora was the anti-Karth, right? It reveals the reality beneath the prophetic imagery, the, the mortality beneath the guise of immortality, as we're going to see again in the House of the Undying. And Danny also thinks of the City of Bones as standing in for all the empty cities that Dothraki leave behind. Like she sees this, this empty plinth and she thinks, oh, maybe that god is in Vase Dothrak. It's like Vase Talora is like this photo negative of all the other cities that Danny goes to in her storyline. And you get this question, is she going to do the same? Is she going to end up another vacant god? That that Eris line, as you said, Jeff, stands out so strongly when you think about Danny squatting on the city of bones like a dragon. Let him be king over charred bones and cooked meat. Let him be the king of ashes. But on the other hand, yeah, you say you have the, you have the fruit trees, those trees she wants to plant, the fruits, the, the peach, the figs representing life. So it's it's really this, this the both sides of that proverbial Targaryen coin. And I think it's really interesting the idea of her settling here over the city of bones i really like the idea uh that feels like one of those narrative carcasses left on the landscape that could have seen danny here with her kalisar in a sort of safe place but not safe uh healing from their traumas and growing a functional community together figuring out who's who's good at what in their in their little city and practicing her leadership skills all of those things are potential right here i mean there's lots to do there's they could they could look around there were scrolls in another city they might find some scrolls here they you know um they could have seances with all these ghosts that we were promised. We were promised ghosts and we didn't see any. One of the things I like about this chapter is that it is a narrative. It's a, it's a narrative trailhead that wasn't explored. Hmm. I, I like that too. I think what could have been for Danny's story, like I was saying before, I, I like the way that George ends up rewriting Danny's story in a Game of Thrones. I think it's a much stronger story, but I, do find some of the aspects of the original letter really interesting with the idea of her discovering the dragons along the Dothraki Sea after both after murdering Drogo and revenge for Viserys, which is a really strange idea, given what we know from a Game of Thrones. At the same time, though, this idea of the City of Bones kind of encapsulates some of the things that Danny is going to be experiencing in her arc going forward. But it does provide an opening for all these ghosts, of course, all the ghosts in the bones to have Jorah Mormont, that slave bear who I hate, come in to explain his awesome, so awesome backstory. Exactly. Jorah's earned the spotlight being such a nice guy and all. I do oh, love God. how George transitions just into Jorah's backstory. My handmaids say there are ghosts here. Oh, there are ghosts everywhere, Sir Jorah said softly. We carry them with us wherever we go. Yes, she thought. Viserys, Caldrogo, my son Rago, they are with me always. Tell me the name of your ghost, Jorah. You know all of mine. 
It's interesting because Danny says earlier in the chapter that figs are more important than ghosts in terms of what's important about Vase Teloro. So that establishes a dynamic where the material world, the material interests take priority over the supernatural. But she also says to herself that dragons are more powerful than ghosts anyway. So she's still relying on that supernatural aspect. And I think that's an interesting dynamic wherein you can't easily assert the primacy of the present material world, like the peach that Jorah has, Renly's peach, previewed <laughs> mm-hmm. here. You can't assert the primacy of that world over magic nor the past, because the latter pair will inevitably crop up to bite you in the ass. Again, hence the sitting of a city of bones, which speaks to both magic and the power of the past. Jorah can't escape his ghosts, and Danny acknowledges that she can't escape hers either. And as with the deprivation of the desert, where Danny is growing thin along with her people, this grounds our somewhat high-flying messiah character in very human realities. I also like how Jorah's story sets up a, a culture clash between the North and the South. Hmm, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it reminds me of the, the opening line of, um, of Catalan's very first POV chapter. Catalan had never liked this god's wood. Catalan still feels like an outsider in the North to a certain extent, and indeed she compares herself to Lanesse when talking to the Mormont women in A Storm of Swords. She remembered how young the Lady Lanesse had been, how fair, and how unhappy. One night, after several cups of wine, she had confessed to Catalan that the north was no place for a high tower of Old Town. Uh, there was a Tully of River Run who felt the same once, she had answered gently, trying to console. But in time, she found much here she could love. All lost now, she reflected. Winterfell and Ned, Bran and Rickon, Sansa, Arya, all gone. Only Rob remains. Had there been too much of Lynette's high tower in her after all, and too little of the Starks? All those questions of cultural assimilation is filtered through people's personal life stories and losses. And ultimately, as we see, Lanes assimilates to yet another culture when they get to Essos, leaving Jorah behind after he'd broken the taboos of the North to try to make her feel at home there. Cultural assimilation is a major theme in Danny's story, and this ties into that. And after the, after the story, of course, Jorah all but confesses that he is projecting Lanes onto Danny in the hopes of redeeming his choices by protecting slash worshipping slash fucking her instead. <laughs> It is the classic pitfall of his generation, right? Wanting so desperately for the romantic image to be real that you end up doing all the terrible things left out of the romantic stories. And Jorah's backstory sets up yet another gauntlet for Danny. Will she handle her own ghosts better? How will she manage the immovable object that is the North? But I don't think it necessarily relates, makes me relate to Jorah Mormont anymore. I think it has in- interesting themes and an interesting structure, but I don't, I don't come away with a new understanding of him like I do with, like, Jamie after the bathtub monologue in Harrenhal, oh, for example. Oh, that's... Did- was George trying to write a bathtub monologue for Jorah? Ugh. That was going to be my question, yeah. He puts her naked in a lion's skin and has her hands sticky with fruit juice. It's infantilizing and it's gross and it's bad. And oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> uh, uh, however, again, coming to this as a, as a show watcher, right? Like... Ian Glenn is indelibly imprinted on my, you know, on my consciousness as Jorah Mormont, and he's stupid, sexy Ian Glenn, and he's he's my Hamlet. If you ever saw the old Rosencrantz and Guildenstern movie, right? He's Hamlet wandering around thinking he's the main character in what's actually somebody else's story. And, you know, like, and here he is doing that role again. I guess that, that maybe that's his wheelhouse. He's great in it, you know. Um, and it, it, I don't think it was really until, uh, Emmett, you went for him on your Tumblr that I was like, 
oh wow, he's actually like really shitty, right? Like, oh, he's <laughs> he's not Ian Glenn. He's Jorah Mormont, and, and he's an ass. And you know, like like he's like Bear Island is rich in bears and trees and all else, and you know, Mage Mormont would be like, you're goddamn right, it's rich in bears and trees. <laughs> Yeah, and you, you bring this, like, southern lady here who's not going to be happy. What are you thinking? But I'm going to make the pitch for it, right? Like, this this is Jorah Mormont's coming-of-age story, right? And it's just a stupid, tawdry, like, soap opera coming-of-age story. Uh, you know, he, he, he he's a sports hero. And, uh, well, no, first he has, like, the boring, uh, just, like, regular... Westerosi feudal marriage and that doesn't work out and then he's a sports hero and gets the girl and uh and then they have boat sex right uh which like <laughs> two weeks worth of boat sex two weeks worth of boat sex and that was you know directly lifted into uh the show at uh the, as an adaptation I, but i i also think that i think it matters that we get this coming of age story from someone of the roberts rebellion generation who Robert's Rebellion was not formative in his experience. He's a Westerosi noble that the, the, doesn't talk about Robert's Rebellion. Um, he he had this girl like that like that was that was his coming of age story. And all of the like Ned Stark, Robert Baratheon, <laughs> like Tower of Joy, all of that like family romance and drama. It doesn't have anything to do with with Jorah. Mar- There's all these other things going on around Westeros. And this is one of the stories that Danny gets about what Westeros is like, right? And sure, what she point. gets is, well, you have these kind of, you can have one of these marriage contracts that's just kind of an economic bargain and it didn't work out very well. And, and then you can have a love match that also turns out into just sort of an economic bargain that doesn't work out very well. <laughs> and this is what Westeros is like. And Danny knows marriages that are economic bargains that don't necessarily start out particularly well. <laughs> and in this chapter where Danny and her experience is 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 being contextualized in these grand landscapes, carcasses of discarded narratives all over the place. Like here's here's one more, you know, perspective coming in to that landscape of, you know, you want to conquer this place? Like here's what they're like. This is a place where southerners and northerners can't live together because uh, there isn't enough music and food to keep the Southerner <laughs> happy, right? Uh, that is interesting. I think some of the world building and contextualization that Jorah Mormont gives to Danny about Westeros does help kind of inform her views. She doesn't come away with a particularly fond viewpoint of Ned Stark. She's going to be calling Ned Stark a usurper's dog all the way through A Dance mm-hmm. with Dragons. When we know this guy and we know what Eris Targaryen was like as well, you know, you, you bring up a, a really fascinating point to me, which is that we don't have any sense that Jorah Mormont felt that Robert's Rebellion was a formative experience in his upbringing. We get the sense that the Greyjoy Rebellion was very formative for him and that he mm-hmm. won his glory charging through the walls. Like that was his battle of the Trident, essentially. He was Robert Baratheon at that point, riding in after or running in after uh, Thoros and Mir with his flaming sword. Like that's all the glory and the color that George likes to splash on these battle scenes and the memories that people have of it. Now, I think the fact that Robert's Rebellion doesn't play any part in Jorah's kind of upbringing 
does help to kind of contextualize what Danny's thinking about Westeros and th- what Danny's thinking out specifically about Robert's Rebellion. You know, we get lots of things, like I said before, about like how Robert's Rebellion was full of just the usurper's dogs overthrowing her father. And yeah, she starts to learn a little bit more about Eris, but she doesn't learn it through Jorah. She learns it through Barristan Incognito as Arston Whitebeard in a Storm of Swords, and then bounding forward on into A Dance with Dragons. So I guess like the question I have for both of you guys is that, do you think that George is attempting to make Jorah a much more great character? Is this story attempting to help us sympathize with Jorah? Do you feel more sympathetic with Jorah Mormon after him reciting the story to, to Danny in the narrative? I think it is supposed to make us understand where Jorah is coming from, and I don't think it works like i think we get a lot more sympathy for danny as a mother and for the dragons in the, the paragraph about the translucent wings than than we ever get with jorah you know laying himself bare I, and 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 i think i think it's supposed to be a character sketch and it does kind of kind of fall flat as a character sketch compared to other character sketches even though i find some of the, the details that reach out kind of interesting Agreed completely. Well said. And uh, yeah, I think Jorah's backstory is fine as a foundation for a character. I don't think, I don't particularly get invested in how George builds on him as a present day character on top of that, though. I think there's some missed opportunities there. Like, what if Jorah became like an anti-slaver activist because he regretted what he'd done and saw joining up with Danny's crusade as a way to redeem him? And that became interesting in dance when he got taken himself as a slave along with Tyrion. Which is a plot point that George doesn't seem to have done anything yet. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. that happened late in Dance with Dragons. Who knows what he has in mind? But there's potentially something interesting there with this unrepentant slaver being himself enslaved. But so far, it's just kind of sitting there inert. So, yeah, as I've said before, Jorah is probably my least favorite of the major-ish characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. Not because the components aren't there, but because I don't think anything particularly interesting is done with them. His coming-of-age story is over. Like, and and right. most of the... POVs are having their coming of age. I mean, you, Jamie is having his coming of age on the page <laughs> with us, you know, as a full-grown adult, like, you know, and 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 Arya is as a a child, like, you know, and and that's that's not what what's happening with Jorah. He's, you know, he 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 is who he is and he's telling a adolescent with sticky fingers that she reminds him of his <laughs> the wife that oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm i'm right there with both of you guys in in my ideas about jorah and it, it just doesn't sympathize me to jorah given that we have ned stark very sternly saying that he wishes that he could have jorah back so that he could behead jorah mormont instead of get the pardon that jorah wishes for but jorah i would say in karth does provide a bit of good advice especially in relation to the temptations that danny is going to experience in karth and especially the three tempters that are going to be ever present in Danny's story going forward in A Clash of Kings on even into A Dance with Dragons and into The Winds of Winter if you want to read The Forsaken. Yes, this chapter concludes with deliverance from three very suspect angels of mercy. And George is at his most blatant about the rule of three in Danny's A Clash of Kings chapters. This is just a taste compared to the House of the Undying in that regard. And we will have more to say about the terrible trio of Piat Pri, Zerazo and Daxos, and Quaith of the Shadow when we arrive in Karth. Suffice to say here that none of them are particularly depthful characters. They're archetypes, and while I might want more given that they are the main introduction, the main new characters in Danny's storyline and Clash, they are skillfully deployed as archetypes. These three characters offer Danny different paths and different traps, and so they come complete 
with different styles. Again, George is leaning hard on the visuals here because they're not particularly psychologically depthful. So you get the emphasis on Quaith's mask and Piapri's lips and so on. The detail I really love is that they all speak to her in different languages, though. Like, that communicates so many things at once. The, the cosmopolitan nature of Karth, because they can all speak and understand Dothraki and Valyrian and the common tongue of Westeros. It, it lets you know that these three are all going to try to try to get Danny on their side individually. They're all going to try to speak to her in a language by which she can be seduced. And above all, this speaks to Danny's own status as the center of multiple narratives that all these languages apply to her story. She is at once Khaleesi, heir to Westeros, and child of the Free Cities. I also like that Quaith, for all her cryptic prophecies later on, is the only one who occasionally speaks bluntly of these three, telling Danny, yeah, we've come for your dragons. Danny is now taking center stage as a living miracle along with her children, and George will strive with Karth to provide the biggest and most alluring stage possible, but right from the start with Quaith, we get a warning that, ah, all is not as it seems. And yet, Danny goes with them anyway. And yeah, it's tragic in that she might have been able to make a home in Vase Taloro, she will think to herself later. We talked about the, the, the imagery of this chapter and the structure, but for me, the heart of it comes when her first two scouts return without success, because again, rule of three. You see Danny make these moves that silently speak to her growing willingness to stay in the City of Bones, to help it and her people bloom. It's not explicit, but it is implied. She's seeing to defenses, she's pulling up the marble to get at the soil beneath. These are long-term moves. It parallels the end of her Storm of Swords arc when she's, she's in Marine. She says she's going to, quote, stay, rule, be a queen. It's a commitment to leadership. But ultimately, tragically, destiny calls Danny on to Karth and beyond, to Dragonstone and King's Landing, where all the doors will turn as red as this desert. Dragons plant no trees. Fire consumes and there's nothing left but sand and bones. I do think that it's really good that we have... The interpol the the kind of subversion here of the three wise men coming to Daenerys Targaryen instead of bearing gifts to Danny, they're the ones who want to receive her three gifts from her, which I think is a really smart move that George makes in kind of inter interrogating this trope that we see starting in the Bible, going on forward into a lot of things in terms of that rule of three. And I think that about wraps us up for our depth portion of this episode. Transitioning to the foreshadowing and groundwork, we get some mention of a couple Dothraki guys who are still out on the Dothraki Sea and out in the desert too. I wonder if they're going to pop up ever again. Yes, indeed. As with the Game of Thrones Danny 9, George takes time to remind us about Danny's enemies among the Dothraki, like Pono and Jaco. And they are as certain to burn in the winds of winter as they did in season 6 when she comes back to Vase Dothrak. George wants to... to Drop them in, in bits and pieces to keep them in our minds so it doesn't feel too inorganic when they pop up again. Right. And it's interesting when you look at the journey of Pono, because he goes all the way from Slaver's Bay, almost all the way to Volantis in A Dance with Dragons. And then we have this idea that he might be in Danny's pathway come some point in the winds, whether he's going to return it back and face Dothrak or whether Danny is going to encounter him as she journeys westward from Marine or the or Vase Dothrak, wherever she, whatever her destination is going to take her. And I think that's a good way that George is reminding us of these characters so that when they do, when Jacob does pop back up in Danny's 10th chapter in A Dance with Dragons, we're not like, who, who, who's this again? Jake, 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 the Dothraki call, call Jake, Jake, call Jake. But I think it's also good that we have this, though, this recurring motif of these guys are going to pop back up, symbolizing that they're both important to Danny's story, as well as showing us that they will feature prominently in Danny's storyline going forward. Off the, off the top of my head, I can't think of a single, like, Kalpono is somebody else theory in the fandom. <laughs> <laughs> He's managed to escape those, bless him. This, this is, I, I'm glad about this. This isn't a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> no one take that challenge up, please. Don't no, say no. he's Kyle Condon oh. or no, whatever. No. 
So, uh, second little bit of foreshadowing we have here. Danny notes that the dragons need to be in sight of her or else they would grow restless and agitated. In dance, when Viserion and Rhaegal are chained and away from Danny, they start burrowing their way deep into the bowels of the Great Pyramid while Drogon flies restless in the Dothraki Sea before then returning to Mom in the famous scene at Daznak's pit. He needs to be in sight of her and boy, oh boy, Barrison's thoughts about the dragons at the outbreak of Battle of Fire. Let's read them one more time. They will come, Sir Barrison might have said. The noise will bring them, the shouts, the screams, the scent of blood. They will draw them to the battlefield just as the roar from Daznak's pit drew Drogon to the Scarlet Sands. But when they come, will they know one side from the other? Somehow, Barristan did not think so. If only Mom were there to help Viserion and Rhaegal distinguish friend and foe from the battle to come. Man, uh, having read The Winds of Winter several times now, I can say that that would have been much more, be- but it would have been much more beneficial for all the parties involved in the Battle of Fire if Viserion and Rhaegal had Mom around to help guide them in the battle to come. Well, that's the thing about the dragons. Like even when that, even when they're at the most dangerous, they're still Danny's kids, and there's still something oddly childlike about them as quentin says in the dragon pit i forget whether it's regular Viserion. he says oh they're looking for their mom they're, they don't know understand why danny isn't here so that i think that, that for me that only makes them more tar- terrifying that they're not you know cackling evil monsters the way some dragons are in fantasy that they are animals and they are childlike still even at that point i, I want to come up with some like brilliant uh, <laughs> like textual connection analysis that uh, of how the the dragon names are clues about who will ride them in the end game and coming to this question with like a, a bit fresh now that we have an end game uh, that is canon from season 8 and we we have fates for these three dragons i would name them all for those the gods have taken the green one shall be regal for my valiant brother who died on the green banks of the trident the cream and gold I call Viserion. Viserys was weak, cruel and weak and frightened, yet he was my brother still. His dragon will do what he could not. And the black beast? Asked Sir Jorah Mormont. The black, he, she said, is Drogon. So what do you think? Do y'all think D&D went back to look at that passage and, and when they were crafting their 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 storyline for season eight? That's a tough question. I, I want to say that obviously John writing Rhaegal is important because he's Rhaegar's son. Viserion being ridden by Tyrion I don't, or whoever's going to ride Tyrion or whoever's going to ride Tyrion, god damn it. Whoever's going <laughs> to uh, keep that in, Evan. Uh, whoever's going to uh, to ride Viserion, I'm not sure. I I mean... You mean not I, the Night King? Uh, yeah. Not 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 the Night King. Euron Greyjoy, I think, will ride, likely ride Viserion, right? I think that's probably going to be something that Euron is going to I could see that. I could see it being Tyrion. If Tyrion Targaryen turns out to be true, the line about Danny saying he was my brother still. I'm not saying I love it, but I'm saying that could tie together if Tyrion rides Viserion. That line could, could be a bit of foreshadowing. But yeah, Viserion, I think, definitely is the three of the mystery. Obviously, three heads as the dragon doesn't have to come literally completely true with all three of them lined up perfectly together and taking off in one. But... Rhaegal to John seems like a very strong connection and Viserion I think there's I think I think it's been left purposely ambiguous on George's part about the multiple directions and maybe maybe we'll see multiple re- people ride him that's certainly a possibility well there's one aspect about Drogon which I think is you know can be a little bit uncomfortable which is when Danny actually rides Drogon in a dance with dragons George frames the act as very sexual if you read the chapter from Danny if you read Danny 9 her riding Drogon it's like take me away ride 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 higher 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 like Danny is 
almost certainly maybe possibly climaxing there in that portion of the chapter. And of course, that does call back to what Doria teaches Danny on the Dothraki Sea about riding Drogon, Drogon, riding Drogo specifically in a sexual manner. So I think that's the connection there for Drogo, Drogon. I don't know. Maybe I'm speaking nonsense. I think you're right. I think it's there. And if I remember correctly, that that chapter is one that that has been on paper for years, right? Oh, sure. I, Since I, right after Storm, I think. That George knew this was where Danny was going in that relationship. And it makes sense, you know, you cut right from the end of that chapter to a John chapter. So I mm-hmm. think that that adds up perfectly in terms of their relationship. Mm-hmm. So shifting us to our discussion for this episode, George is obviously going all in on biblical imagery and other religious themes throughout this chapter. But, you know, so, sometimes that kind of thing can seem hollow or just a way to add gravitas to a material that hasn't earned it on its own. So you have to ask the question of what it all adds up to, especially in the wake of Game of Thrones. What does Danny mean, spiritually speaking? And how does that resonate or not with our own spirituality? I don't think it means very much. I think it's very (laughs) hollow. I think it's George Magpie going on here where uh, where these these stories work pretty well. And and let's let's walk Danny through the paces of, um, you know, that's how I feel about the the religious imagery. I I have such a hard time sometimes when I when I read George and his take on on religions. I, you could tell that George is very well read on the religious imagery. It's he is sourcing this stuff to things we saw. You know, Emmett, you had pointed out that George is kind of throwing Jesus, Muhammad, and Moses, and all those kind of dudes who used to hang out in the desert all into a blender and kind of putting them all together and. Ta-da! Here comes Daenerys Targaryen out with a on top of a dragon. I guess um, you know th- these are all things that I think are that, that George is knowledgeable about. Where, where I think is is coming from, and where where I come from is that George is knowledgeable, but at the same time, I don't get the same the sense that they mean much to him. I, I want to say like the when we t- we will probably talk about this at some point in significant depth down the road. But when I look at George's take on religion and on spirituality. What I see is that he's very attracted to the forms of spirituality and the practices to a lesser extent, but it doesn't kind of connect with him at a mental, spiritual, emotional level. At the same time, though, when I read this chapter, I think George is imbuing his own pathos on the Kalasar dying around Daenerys Targaryen to bring her to the magical city where she can survive. And then she's met by the three wise men. Again, it's all talking about George's knowledge. And George has a lot of love for his characters. He's consistently referred to them as his children since he has no children of his own. He said that's many, many times now in interviews. So spiritual significance for George, probably not a lot. Is it hollow? A little bit, yeah, maybe, kind of. But at the same time, George is sourcing this to things that he knows. What it means to me spiritually, not a lot. I mean, I I, I want to say that that I connect emotionally with the story, and that's and I can kind of separate out my own spirituality to and and emotions regarding a song of ice and fire. Separate out some of my feelings, personal feelings about different topics versus what is what George is attempting to communicate in the story. I, I don't know. It's it's hard. I feel like I'm just kind of stumbling over words here, but it's it's hard for me to connect to the spiritual aspect of Danny's story. And at the same time, I, I do understand where George is coming from. Maybe that's where I should come down on ultimately. I think it would be appropriate for someone to to read this and feel like there was a religious narrative in it, even if somewhere of all all of the three of us don't particularly feel that. Like, I mean, it's in there, and and 
what is in there is just really big questions of who am I? And I am a person with that the cosmos is interested in, apparently, is where where <laughs> Danny is. And one of the ways George tells us that is that she like says it. And another way that George <laughs> tells us that is that he shows it to us by having all of these religious things happen to her and by having and by having her make decisions that parallel decisions that religious people make. And this is all happening in a world where Danny just found out that magic exists. Up until then, like magic, the idea of dragons was this like thing that her abusive brother like controlled her with. And it's not that. It is something entirely else. I think it, for a number of reasons, George handles that spiritual sense of being at the center of time and space and a thousand lives live inside you now and all that. I think he handles that better with the old gods than with the stuff in the East, just generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And I, think he, I think he handles it better with Bran rather than Danny is what I'm saying. And I think yeah, that's true I agree. For, for, for a variety of reasons as we can get into as we go through the story. But I also think part of it is that I think George has more affinity for a character trying to get to that position at the center of creation and failing and falling short and being flawed. Someone like Stannis, obviously someone like Quentin in terms of Daenerys' own arc is kind of like a, a flip side version of it. Like when I think about like um, uh, the last temptation of Christ and Jesus' line, God loves me. I know he loves me. I want him to stop. <laughs> I think that's I think that's a, a powerful idea that George kind of likes in Cotton's too. We can't really do it with Danny because God clearly loves Danny and Danny knows it. And it's like... What I'm saying, I think George does a better job with uh, versions of the story that more obviously immediately go wrong. And I think with this part of Danny's story, he's struggling to tell the Ur version, the version where the prophet is actually acting like a prophet and things are going the way they go for prophets. Like, I think he's having trouble with a non-deconstructive version oh, yeah. of this yeah, story. That's good. Yeah, and I, I think I think he and it's it's difficult to tell this story in a I think in the, the fashion he wants to he'd have to give into that spiritual core that I think he's 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 a little more distant from and that in addition to all of that going on this whole story Danny's chapter is providing a deconstructing perspective on the previous eleven chapters of all, of all that's been going on in Westeros where where they are bickering over you know a pointy chair. And don't know about Doom from the Skies is right now wandering the desert, uh, uh, fattening up, you know? I think George does generally a better job with mortality than immortality. Maybe that's mm-hmm. really what's going on yeah, here. Okay. And I think he does does a better job with, like, the, the fear of the abyss. And I mentioned Ozymandias earlier, the poem Ozymandias. And... That, that sense of your, your great uh, accomplishments and your creations and the, the ladder you mean to build to the top of Olympus crumbling and fading. I think he I think he's more comfortable with that kind of angle on these questions. And that eventually becomes what Daenerys' story is about, especially if season eight is canon in this regard. But that's not really what it's about here. And I think that's maybe why he struggled with it. I agree with that. And I think, you know, George, I think, loves to have characters that are right in the midst of their their apex of their characters in some sense, but also those religious, those specific religious characters that he has his point of views, Dampere and Melisandre being the two major characters. Like we have these people who have now, in the case of Dampere, have been involved in religion for over almost 10 years. And then we have Melisandre, who's been involved in her religion for um, a couple hundred years, maybe a hundred years, maybe a really long time. No one really knows for sure. And exploring how these religious people who believe that they're the pinnacle of their religious experience and their spirituality 
end up being brought down low and brought down short by events on the ground. So we have Dampera being captured by Euron and tied to the prow of silence. We have Melisandre finding that out at the end of A Dance of Dragons that Stannis is dead and maybe that Stannis isn't the Azor high figure that she believes him to be. Danny's at an interesting point being at the start of her prophetic figure of destiny story. She's had dreams that have guided her, but at the same sense, she has to walk the path. She has to spend the 40 days in the desert. I think if George was writing the New Testament, he would have probably started Jesus's story right around the Last Supper, I want to say. If we're comparing Dampere and Melisandre and Danny, Dampere and Melisandre's faiths include resurrections. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say Danny's doesn't, but she she invoked life in three stone eggs. So maybe she does, too. Well, that's part of the question here is that Danny herself doesn't have really a specific faith. Like, she doesn't cite specific gods. She talks about gods in general and other people's gods. But And part of me feels like that's just George, of course, not being super interested in religion, especially at the start of the story. But as the story stands at the end of Dance, I think that's also setting up Danny to at least temporarily join Team R'hllor, given that you have yeah. Nakuro and Benero gunning for her and the Red Temple just awaiting her in Volantis. And so maybe then we'll have a stronger sense of what Danny means to George spiritually and how she what she has in common and what she doesn't have in common with someone like Dan Perry Melisandre, where he has already gone all in on the faith. She could just as easily go all in on Rolor because it's politically expedi- expedient. Very true. Much much like Stannis at first. Yep. That's a good point. Stannis, ding. So <laughs> Ding. <laughs> I think that about wraps us up for this episode. Thanks for listening. It was an absolute pleasure, of course, doing this episode. But it was made all the more of a pleasure by having Mighty, Mighty Isabel joining us. So oh, tell thanks. us where we... Of course. Tell us where we can find your stuff on the internet. You can find me on Twitter uh, at Mighty Isabel. And you can find my more or less defunct Tumblr at uh, mightyisabel.tumblr.com. Um, mostly you can find me on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. I'm particularly easy to find in the um, quasi-monthly meta threads. But if you post something about an influence like I, Claudius or about Accursed Kings as a thread, I'll, I'll come running. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can follow me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can follow me at Brennan Beefish on Twitter, Brennan Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsadviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank you our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Clint Esquire, the Wolf in the West, Sir Sorcedelica, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, first of her name, the overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Mirabal, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, just a CR of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, and Lord Timothy You. Thank you as always. Thank you, High Lords and Ladies, very, very much. So, join us next week for Clash of Kings Aria 4 as Arya's scrappy little fellowship comes under attack by one of Tywin's worst cronies, that motherfucker, Sir Amory, Sir in quotation marks, Amory Lorch. Can't wait until he dies. God, it's gonna be so great. And this will be our 
next live stream episodes we talked about at the beginning of this episode. So we will see you all for that at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Monday, October 28th, which is tonight, if you are listening on the general release date. That's going to be a fun, it's going to be a fun episode. It explodes all the tensions we were talking about in the first few Arya Clash of Kings chapters. I say fun, it's a devastating chapter, but all, all my heartstrings have grown numb at this point, so I'll just have fun. <laughs> I, I'm going to have fun. Anyways, we get to do battle analysis. Come on, man. It's going to be so much fun doing all that battle analysis live in front of all the people that love us or hate us. One of the Perfect. two. Perfect. Perfect. Perfect.